Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is November 20th, 2015. This is episode 1679 of the Survival Podcast, and I've got a good one for you today because it is Friday, Friday, Friday. Yeah, my voice is still not recovered from the last event, and I did three events in six weeks, so... Might be a while before my voice is back to where I can do a big, deep, rich Friday, Friday, Friday for you. But <clears throat> it is still a monster show, not with monster trucks, but with your monster questions for the expert counsel. I've got quite a few of them queued up for you today. And uh, remember, the way you submit a question for an expert counsel member, send me an email with TSPC expert in the subject line, TSPC space expert. In the subject line, in the uh, body of the email, ask me your question in one or two sentences, then follow with any details. Please tell me who your question is for. If you're not familiar with our expert counsel and all the people that are on it, go to survivalpodcast.com and under about you will see meet the expert counsel. All of the expert council members are there along with their areas of expertise that you can uh, take a look at. And uh, send me your questions for the council members. Sometimes people send me things like, whichever one you think is best, please at least name one or two council members, because when I'm going through compiling questions for them, I just run a search in the box that I throw them into, and if you don't put anybody in there, I won't ever see your question again. That's just the way I do things, because I'm trying to do things quickly and efficiently. So at least suggest, if you think like it could be Ferguson or Wheaton or whatever, you know, Or it could be Harris or Glance. Just put them both in there. And then that way I'll see it and I'll make a determination. But please name someone in your emails for the expert council. Before I get into the questions you have for them this week and their awesome answers, as always, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Chef Keith Snow. Chef Keith is an awesome guy. He's a member of our expert council, long-term sponsor of the show, and he just has an awesome website. If you get over to HarvestEating.com, you're going to find all kinds of great stuff. First, you can find the stuff that he sells, his organic teas, his spices, seasoning mixes, and other products. I use Chef Keith's spices and seasoning mixes on a daily basis pretty much. Uh, if I'm not re reaching for uh, the northern Italian, I'm probably reaching for low and slow or Montana steak or... The new prime rib stuff or the chicken curry. It's just all awesome. He also teaches you how to focus on the technique over the recipe and cooking, how to make cooking a life skill, how to cook seasonally and locally. He's got a lot of great videos on his website, a lot of great blog posts, a lot of great recipes, and he's got an awesome podcast. You can find it all at HarvestEating.com. And remember, Chef Keith is a member of our expert council. If you have a question about cooking, you get it into me, and we'll get you an answer for it on a Friday show. Chef Keith Snow at HarvestEating.com. Long-term sp sponsor, great partner, great fellow prepper, and just one of the most awesome guys you'll ever meet. Check out his website again today at HarvestEating.com. Sponsor of the day number two today is Backwoods Home Magazine, the easiest company that I've ever had to endorse ever in my entire career. Um, it's really easy to endorse a company. 
when you can look back and say to yourself, I've been this company's customer for over 20 years. That's what Backwoods Home is to me. 1994, I became a subscriber to Backwoods Home. I didn't even start the Survival Podcast till 2008. I was their customer for all of those years. In the early years of the Survival Podcast, a lot of the information that I shared with you, a lot of the teaching that I did came right out of Backwoods Home magazine. They're an incredible company. And hey, if you haven't been a, a customer that long, consider going back and checking out some of their anthologies. They have anthologies going back to the very first year of public at Backwoods Home. If you want to get a subscription, you're a new subscriber, they have a deal for you in the Member Support Brigade as well. Backwoods Home is an amazing publication. If they weren't, I wouldn't have been their customer this long. It's great today that I can work with people like Dave Duffy and John Silvera, Masada Yub, and Jackie Clay, knowing that you know after reading them all those years, they're now part of what I do. It's just awesome. If you check out Backwoods Home, what you'll find is a publication, sort of kind of like Grit, Sort of kind of like Mother Earth News, with a lot more homesteading stuff in it, and with a libertarian flair. Check out BackwoodsHome.com today, and you'll see why I've been their customer for so very long. And a quick follow-up to Chef Keith and Harvest Eating. He finally has those spices back in uh, stock. He's got some really good stuff. I have a post out about it this week. I'll put a link in the show notes today for you about it as well. These would make excellent, excellent, excellent Christmas presents. Some of the stuff's in limited quantity. Uh, and he has this new uh, barbecue beef brisket stuff that uh, is specifically been developed at my request. I've got some other stuff I have him working on, too. Anyway, with that, let's take a look at the year that was the episode of the year, 1679. Because the episode is 1679, I have three from Alex Shrug today. I have Niagara Falls is discovered. Again, I have go to the head of the class. French requires merchant exams. And I have the Armenia Earthquake. I'm going to read the Armenia Earthquake and one other one because the Armenia Earthquake is two sentences. A 7.0 earthquake hits Armenia this year. Not much is known about the quake except that it knocked down a lot of churches. And Fort Evian was completely destroyed. The Shah conscripted people from several local villages to rebuild the fort. Um, Nigeria. Niagara Falls. Niagara Falls. Slowly I turned. Step by step. Who knows what that's from? If you know what that's from, you probably had an awesome childhood. That, from my friends, is from a couple different episodes of the old classic, not the remake, the old original classic, uh, black and white comedy series, The Three Stooges, Mo, Larry, and Curly. Everybody but Curly was an also ran as a stooge, as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, Niagara Falls is discovered again. At this point, several people can lay claim to being the first European to discover Niagara Falls. The French have sent explorers galore out this way, and missionaries have come along to convert Iroquois Indians. At this time, Robert de la Salle has built a small ship, small ship, a small sailing ship that he names Le Griffon to explore the Great Lakes to find in the Northwest Passage to China. Why? Because a fast route to China means spices and other exotic products can be bought cheaply and sold for a king's ransom in Europe. In the meantime, he is settling for furs. They sail and tow the ship along the Niagara River until they discover the falls. They also make their way to Lake Huron after a severe storm. LaSalle makes a stop at Green Bay. Le Griffin sets out for further exploration. Without him, reportedly, the ship runs into another severe storm. And they never return. My take by Alex Shrug. Traditionally, Niagara Falls has been a favorite destination of honeymooners. There are boat tours, and some people tried over to go over the falls in a barrel. Annie Edison Taylor was the first person to try it in 1901. 
she survived. When she was pulled out of the barrel, bruised and bleeding, she said, no one ought ever do that again. It is currently illegal to go over Niagara Falls in a barrel or anything else. Oddly enough, in the 1800s, several attempts to find a new homeland for the Jews considered Grand Island near Niagara Falls as a site. Uganda was also on the list. Regarding the ship that was lost, two divers recently claimed to have found the wreck of Le Griffon somewhere at the bottom of Lake Michigan, but the report seems like a promotional stunt by two treasure hunters. Only time will tell. You know, my take on this is, okay, we're up to 1679 right now. No one is confused about the fact that this is not Asia we're in, that this is a landmass. Okay? We get that. But people still don't get how big it is. People still don't comprehend how massive the North American continent is. People still don't get it. They don't even really get, I think at this point, even though there's been the circumnavigation of the globe, the true monstrous size of the planet at this point. And it seems completely logical to people that some of this water somewhere must go to the other side. There's this entire thing called a continental divide that kind of sheds water in two directions that prevents that from happening, but no one really fully comprehends this yet in 1679, which means we're only 21 years away from the year 1700. We're progressing rapidly in this series to the modern day, faster than you might think. It wasn't that long ago I got on the air the first time and said, this is the first edition of the Survival Podcast. We didn't have a history segment by then, back then, but now we are up to 1600. You know, time marches on. That's that's the little thing to think about there. But my lesson in this, for you, is that just like the explorers in the 1670s, we can look at something and be sure there must be another side to it, that it must be a logical conclusion. And if we don't understand the size and scope of the issue, we oversimplify the journey, and therefore we make a lot of mistakes along the way, and sometimes we may send out ships that never come back. That to me sounds an awful lot like the Middle East right now. Everybody seems to be so sure we can just bomb the, the shit out of ISIS and then they'll be gone. Uh, we got into this mess by bombing the shit out of people. We got into this mess, by, and everything we touch there continues to get worse. Maybe we truly don't understand the size and scope of the problem and the reality that's there. Maybe we need to stop for a minute before too many more ships go out to sea, never to return. My take by Jack Spierka. With that, let's get into uh, expert counsel questions and answers for you today. My first one is for Michael Jordan. This is my question for him. Michael did an awesome, awesome impromptu class uh, at our most recent event. I gave him two hours to teach beekeeping, and he snuck in a half hour on mead making. He actually made mead in 30 minutes. It's really a class he usually does in about two hours. Uh, but he did it in 30 minutes, including making the mead, doing what he calls coffee pot mead. So what I've asked Michael to do for us is explain to everybody out there in the audience, if you want to start making mead, make maybe a gallon at a time. And think about this. You could make a gallon a week for a couple months and end up with a lot of mead by you know a year from now. Or you could make a gallon a week for a year this way. It's really easy, really simple, 30 minutes a shot with a coffee pot. How the heck do you make mead with a coffee pot? Michael Jordan, please tell us how to do just that. Hey, this is the Bee Whisperer, Michael Jordan of a Bee Friendly Company, here to talk to you about mead. 
my favorite topic in the world of beekeeping. Mead is the mystical drink of the Viking gods. I only say Viking because it's the method I use in making mead. There are Turkish, Egyptian, European, and even Asian methods of making mead. Many of my meads are using comb honey. It's the Viking way. Mead mead is made from water, honey, and some sort of yeast. It is the oldest alcoholic drink known to man, and I must say the finest. Well, that's my opinion. Hopefully some will agree with me. (laughs) I only have 10 minutes here, so I'm going to give you my 30-minute mead in a coffee pot. There's a jug of this mead sitting at Jack Spirico's right now. This exact uh, summertime shanty that we did at his facility. So hopefully it's fermenting out. Maybe he can give us some updates on how it is and how it tastes as it's going. Um, This is uh, one of the courses I teach at the University of Wyoming Bee College, uh, the 30-minute mead in a coffee pot. The reason I developed it this way of making mead is due to the cost and taste. I make mead. Enough said. I spend hours making mead using all kinds of honey and adjuncts, so I I know about cost. Honey is the most costly thing when it comes to making mead. It can be anywhere from $5 a pound to $35 or even more. When making meat at home and using 17 pounds of honey at $10 a pound is $170 for honey alone for a 5-gallon batch. So when getting to exotic honeys, the cost can be astronomical. So making small batches to see what what you want and what the tastes are uh, can help your investment of your money is a must. Uh, Honey has over 3,000 colors. It... uh, Never tastes the same. Uh, that's due to the seasons. And there are so many kinds. I could never name all the plants that are used to make honey. Uh, the different tastes because the altitudes, climate, weather, poor seasons, good seasons, pesticides, even indoor-outdoor plants with different nutrients make different nectar flows for the same plant. So almost every meat is one of a kind. Then serving great dishes with meals even advances the taste of mead, and mead enhances the meal. Uh, I make a chocolate orgasm mead that when served with a lemon poppy seed waffle with a kale, blueberry, strawberry cream sauce, it's legendary. One of the items I will be offering at my meadery because it's it's really good and enhances the chocolate uh, alcohol taste. So on that note, let's make a batch. This one's called Summertime Shanty. It's one of the easiest ones to make and can be heated in the winter for warm nights and drank over ice in the summertime refreshment. What you will need. You'll need two to four pounds of honey. The more honey, the sweeter, but never go over four pounds or the yeast will not dissolve in the honey. Uh, it has a little temperament when it comes to that. But if you're under two pounds, your meads will only be like six to nine percent alcohol. So, you know, two and a half pounds is usually the best. This recipe uses clover honey. Now remember, you can use any type of honey, orange blossom, sourwood, sunflower, any kind. But this one I use clover. And also clover honey is different from different parts of the world's colors and smells. So you have to play to see what you like best. One reason for the gallon batch. Um, You'll need two gallon jugs of water or a gallon jug of water in a storage container. Um... I like stream water or well water, but not anything from the tap from your city because of the fluorides, the chlorines and stuff in it. You have to have it aerated. You can use osmosis, electrification. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff to do it, but 
I just get some really good stream sweet water from my ranch up in the hills at my retreat to use. Uh, one of the jug will be made to brew in, and if you have two jugs, one's just for water and one's to brew in. So we're just going to use use these water jugs. So I usually get two one-gallon water jugs. I use the water from the store. If I don't get the water from my uh, facility up at the ranch, because I don't have to sanitize anything then, you just open the lids and you're good to go. I will get two packets of yeast. The recipe that we're using calls for Red Star Champagne Yeast. Get two packs of it. Uh, the yeast makes all kinds of flavor during fermentation time and also consistency. Uh, can get you uh, alcohol content. Uh, some uh, yeast is high violent, reaction, high violent reactions and uh, some are low rolling reactions. So yeast can play a very intricate part. Some of my yeast are more natural using pollen. Um, uh, I usually take one pack and I dump it in the mix dry and the other one I put in a coffee pot with water and sugar or a little bit of honey to make a starter to dump in. The next thing you need is some balloons. Get the great big kind. Do not get water balloons. This is the cheapest airlock you will ever find. Uh, this was uh, this is so that nothing will get in your mix to vinegar it out or change the flavors uh, in it. Uh, I do some of my batches with open fermentation, and you will get some bugs, some flies, some natural pollens, and other things in it. But uh, that's part of that type of mead making, and that's a more advanced class of brewing. Uh, you have to, it's a way different type of brewing. Uh, when the balloon grows during the reaction, and then it deflates after fermentation. So this is a good way to see when your fermentations are getting done. Uh, you need a coffee pot. I like the little five-cup co five coffee pots, nothing anything bigger than ten cups. Remember, we just want the water hot enough to melt the honey into a liquid sugar form. We're not boiling it. Um, you need one orange and one lemon, both large. This will bring flavor to the drink as well as add the acid needed for the yeast. Good acid content is around 3 to 4%, or on the pH scale. You want a little acidy. Uh, you will need to cut these in thirds and use them. You need a third of each one to put in here to make this mix work. Uh, this is called the adjunct. It can be matted at any time in the brewing or in fermentation. Uh, we are doing it in fermentation stage because uh, we want more taste than smell. Smell vents off during fermentation and when using airlocks, it pushes out fast. So we're using a balloon, so we're not going to lose too much of the aroma. But uh, we're not looking for the aroma. We're looking for more of the taste. The aroma will come with the honey and the wort. And I say wort because in brewing, that is the mixture you usually mix together as a brewer's wort. It's a, a, or a mead mix is what we're using. This will be your mead mix. Uh, in brewing beer, you bring things to a boil. In mead, we, just want, the, we want enzymes and pollens and stuff to stay in the honey. So we just want to melt the honey, uh, <clears throat> and that way we can get it. And with your orange and your lemon, I also want to tell you, pick them. You can go blood oranges and pink lemons. I don't care. Uh, you mix and match what you want. Hell, you can use limes and chilies if you want and try a hot uh, mix of meat. It's your mix. It's your mead. You try it. But this one's summertime shanty, and we're using oranges and lemons. Extra things you will need will be a thermometer and a hydrometer. You want to see the key temperatures of around 70 degrees, and you want to see the uh, estimated alcohol content with the hydrometer. Uh, now the steps of brewing this fine drink. Open one gallon jug of water and pour it in the coffee pot, getting the water warm. Using the rest for later, putting in a container or water your plants. You know, I don't care. 
pour your honey from in from your jar into the jug, getting all that you can out of the jar. The coffee pot water should now be warm enough that you can pour it in the honey jar, swishing it around, getting the rest of the sugar out. Now you have honey in the jug and a little hot water. Put the lid on the jug, shake it, dissolving the honey, getting a really stick sugar water. The jug should be at a third, a little more full now that it has the honey dissolved in the water. Now this is the time that you add your lemon and orange slices and shake it a lot. Get the sugar all over the fruit so the yeast will attack it. This uh, You can also add some zest to the fruit if you want. It adds more flavor if you want. Uh, but you will not need to add any juice at this time. This is all the juice you need for flavoring. But shake it. Shake it a lot. Shake it for three to five minutes. Beat the hell out of this mix. Get air in the sugar water. This helps a lot with fermentation and feeding the yeast. Now take the rest of the water, filling up the jug. So it's almost like five to six inches from the top, giving it room for the yeast to freak out and make CO2 and poop out alcohol or whatever. Now take a small sample of the hydrometer reading. This will tell you the potential alcohol reading. You can taste this at this time to see what you think about the taste, if you want to make it sweeter or if you want to add more flavoring to it at this time. And then I usually save this hydrometer meeting and I use that for my yeast, for my wet yeast. Uh, once I get that all in there and I've got my taste, I take a temperature reading. And if it's around 70 degrees, I'm going to dump my dry yeast in it. Pouring uh, my hydrometer reading into the yeast with the yeast starter and making yeast starter. Once it, the yeast starter rises into like a cake or rises, you're going to dump that yeast starter in the jug too and placing the balloon over it. Um, right now, now you have to let it sit in a dark room for about 60 days. You can filter and pour through a screen door or wire coffee filter and let it sit for a few more days and you can drink it. I dump, I dump mine in a tub and let it freeze. I scoop off the ice and melt it and pour it in ice trays for flavored ice cubes. This raises the alcohol content in my mead, but this is for taste, and I like to mix and match and play things. If you freeze it, this will also help clear your a in your mead. You can either save it in the jug, bottle it down and share it. It's up to you, and you can even let it age. But if you do this whole mix of heating up your water, adding your honey, adding your orange and lemon, shaking and giving air, letting it cool down to about 70 degrees, dumping your yeast in, putting your balloon on, in around 90 to 120 days, you'll have a summertime shanty. Hey, I'm running out of time here. I'm already running over the 10 minutes, but this is the best way I could tell you about it. I'm going to be trying to get some videos out for this, and maybe uh, Jack can get a couple links on uh, his regenerative or on his page about how to make this in a coffee pot. Hey, I am the Bee Whisperer telling you to get your honey from a local keeper that you respect. Buy from a cottage company because we all had to start someplace and it's usually a better product and help your fellow man for one day you may need help too. Speaking of help and your fellow man, be on the lookout for our Kickstarter and Indigo on our meadery. I think one of the big ones that we're going to putting out after talking to the lawyer is that you might be able to get a case of mead every year for the life of the meadery as the investor. Some of the investments are going to be a case of mead every year for 10 years. And we might even have some smaller ones that you might be able to get a case of meat every year for three years. Many blessings to you. Bee Whisperer out. 
Great stuff from uh, Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer, as always. I do have that uh, bottle of mead kind of in a dark, cool area of my office right now. I can see it from here. I wanted to do a little follow-up. I asked Michael, why a balloon? Why not use a regular airlock? And I said, you know, it's just because anybody anywhere can get a balloon. He said, well, that's one reason. Another reason he actually mentioned in the uh, in the show here today was that you can actually see as it expands and eventually begins to, like, flatten back out. And another reason is, like, the, the, anybody that's ever brewed or made meat or wine knows there's, like, an odor that comes when you when you make stuff. Now, some of us really like it, but some people don't, and it really keeps that odor down to a minimum. And what I have to say is, as I think about this, it's really genius because on some levels you don't keep – like, my thing was, well, you're keeping all the gas in. Maybe this balloon will get really, really big. And I guess with, like, a beer ferment with a really kind of violent initial fermentation – that could be an issue, but with meads and wines and ciders, they're really kind of a soft rolling fermentation. And balloons, as we all know, are not 100% effective at holding air in. And all you have to do to see this is blow up a balloon, tie a knot in it, and let it sit in the corner. And, you know, days and days later, it's gotten a lot more deflated. So over time, it's actually slowly letting CO2 gas seep away. So... This seems like a really cool way to make a lot of different meads very easy, and I think I'm going to put myself on some kind of schedule starting right after Thanksgiving to make a batch of mead a week for a year, just for the hell of it. All different kinds and different jugs and bottles. and make some sizers and melamoles and things like that to go with it, and I'll report on that, and I'll report on the progress of Michael's bottle of mead. I think I'll have one of the guest rooms upstairs covered with gallon jugs in you know the next coming year. Anyway, with that, let's get into my next question. This question is actually for Ben Falk. It's one I get quite often. I've taken a stab at it a few times myself. I'd be interested to hear what Ben has to uh, to say about this. It's a common problem for those of us, especially in the northeastern United States where it's relatively humid, and one of our least favorite plants is quite common, that being poison ivy. So this question, Ben, how do you deal with poison ivy when developing your edges? I'm working on developing the edges of my property, but the edges seem to always be taken over by ivy in May. This makes some of the things I've planted downright difficult to get to. I suit up and weed it, but it comes back very quickly. I've used vinegar in the past, and that works, but I don't want to mess up my soil pH. I know goats will generally uh, generally the go-to, but at this point in our homesteading journey, it's not out of our scope. Thanks, Julia. So, Ben, how do we deal with things like poison ivy? Hi, Jack and all. Ben Falk, Whole Systems Design. A question about um, poison ivy. Well, the short, long answer of it is we don't have it here. Um, We're lucky up in the hills away from the river bottoms here to not have a lot of the kind of quote-unquote invasive or or pesty, uh, weedy species that, that most people have to deal with much more in most of the country I think in part it's also because our, our ecosystem isn't quite as destroyed as most of the landscape in the United States. These are just species that are responding to holes being blown open in the ecosystem. But we're also just north of a lot of these systems, a lot of these um, species and their dispersions. And as things warm up, they are moving this way every year. Lyme disease gets further in and, and things move further up. Autumn olive is not here quite yet into the hills, but it's just south of us. I, I wish it was here. I love that plant. But um you know, so it's important to look at the context of, of, you know, what's your ecosystem responding to? You know, the poison ivy is there for a reason. 
Um, goats and sheep are apparently pretty effective against it. But it's, whenever we're trying to fight something directly and oppose something, we're only at best going to get ahead for a little while. Um, just like the war on whatever it is, it's the latest way to, to um, fight something is it's never really getting ahead. So we want to work with that force and, and, you know, it's like the idea of you don't have a slug, you know, problem, you have a duck deficiency, that old adage in permaculture, everything, you know, we have to run everything through that test of, well, what eats it, right? And also what outcompetes it. So when I think of a plant problem, quote unquote, it's in quotes, because a problem is a problem only in a w the way that we view it and in the way we're working with it within our larger context and within our system. So quote unquote problem plant, the first way I think about that is, well, A, what eats it, and B, what outcompetes it. So what, what actually can snuff out poison ivy? You know, what kind of ground covers might be really um, aggressive and be able to fill that same niche? Usually it's a one, two, three punch you need, like knock it down, um, you know, let's say with goats or sheep or mechanically, and then replant. But of course, we never want to remove plants without putting new plants in, unless we want to just be in a perpetual war with that plant. So you'd never want to like pull up poison ivy or anything else or spray it or any other way of trying to destroy that plant and never put some other plant in, never modify the niche in some other way. We do that every day throughout the country, and it's just really a way of, of paying Monsanto and chemical companies because... It doesn't work um, to try to, you know, eradication is, is not a, um, a a way forward. It's just, uh, again, a, it's a way of having a little bit of a war and having some people make some money in the process. And um, it's not really getting us where we want to go. So if you want to deal with poison ivy, A, I wouldn't look to have no poison ivy, although that might be nice. I would look to have a tolerable amount. And B, I would, I would focus on dealing with it holistically like i mentioned in the one two three type of punch where you knock it back and then you fill the niches that it's filling with other plants um i'm not sure i don't have direct experience with what those plants are but they might be the things like mints or things that can take uh fill that same niche and like semi-shade to, to full shade understory um that are really thickly growing um that can out compete it or maybe look into other vines as well, like hardy kiwi, you know, actinidia, arguda, or colamicta, depending on where you are in the country. Um, it'd be great if for all of these questions, we always get a, a, um, a note of where people are in the world, because that's, of course, everything is context dependent. So the answer needs to change with your, at least your climate context, if not for, for other contexts as well. Thanks a lot and best of luck to you. Let me throw that out there. Whenever you ask a question about uh, permaculture, agriculture, things like that, uh, even heating and cooling systems, anything that has anything to do with climate that you give us an approximation of where you're at. I know some people don't want to say, my name is John Smith, and I live at 3211 uh, Redbird Lane in so-and-so Falls, uh, Wischesterton,ville, Idaho or something. But, you know, I, I'm, we're in Idaho in, in Zone 7, uh, and our climate is blah. Uh, is always a good little piece of advice. Uh, information to have. 
Uh, I have had to deal with poison ivy in Pennsylvania, never as a permaculturist, because when I lived there, I was just kind of a, a homesteader, not really a permaculturist yet, so I, I thought more conventionally. But I do understand the niche that poison ivy fills now, and I can add some things to what Ben said. Interestingly enough, the whole time he was giving that answer, and I was listening, I was thinking, mint, 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 right? Mint likes partial shade. Mint likes lots of moisture. Mint is very aggressive. Mint forms, mint forms dense mats, and mint is beneficial, smells good. It's an agricultural product. It's a pollinator product. It's a great plant. We're using it here for a lot of those reasons in the areas where it'll do well, and ducks don't eat it. So since the ducks don't eat it, it, it doesn't get grazed off, and if other things grow around it, they can graze that, and the mint maintains control of the soil. So I think mint would be a good thing. Um, anybody that's ever done any bushcrafting uh, throughout uh, the ranges of Appalachia where uh, poison ivy is common and is any good at it knows that there's a plant that grows right alongside of it all the time that's actually a decent remedy for poison ivy. Therefore, it occupies the same space and provides uh, an opportunity to self-treat any, uh, un, you know, any unexpected exposure, and that's called jewelweed. So jewelweed is another thing. If you wherever you are, it's quite possible that when you look down at your poison ivy rate at rate where it is or right around it, you'll see jewelweed. So when you mechanically in any way remove your poison ivy, do not mechanically remove the jewelweed. Advantage the jewelweed to the disadvantage of the poison ivy. And another plant that's very, very easy to propagate that you can get just about any big box retailer throughout America that as long as you're in partial shade to full shade where poison ivy really does best is English ivy. So English ivy may cover things up and it may not be the most productive plant for you, but it definitely can compete with the same level of growth rate as poison ivy. It's kind of the, the, the non-poison version of poison ivy. So those would be some good plants to consider putting into that space there. And I think that if you take that approach, mechanical removal, and then advantage what you want to the disadvantage of what you don't want, you won't be poison ivy free, but you'll make a lot of progress with poison ivy. The only other way I really know to knock down poison ivy is open it up to the sun. Poison ivy does not grow in the middle of fields. It just doesn't. It can't handle intense sunlight. So if you kind of balance your edges where you have some areas that really get hit, hammered by the sun, and then do all this mechanical removal, disadvantage, uh, replacement in the more shady, moist areas, you should do well. The moister you get, the shadier you get, move more toward uh, your things like mint and English ivy. And as you get a little bit of sun where the poison ivy can still grow, uh, but it's, it's kind of like finding its own edge. That's where to really intensify things like jewelweed because jewelweed's designed to exist where poison ivy exists. Uh, hopefully that helps you with some additions there. Next one I have is for John Pugliano. Basics of the question are, what can I, wife and I, do today to start building our credit up from non-existent to good over the next couple of years so we can eventually take out a loan and buy our first home? Of course, the concern is, how do I do that? Uh, with my current income level, my current debt load, and not just putting myself into a bunch more debt so I can get more debt. John, how do we handle this issue? Because most of us can't write a check to buy a house. Hello, Sam. Thanks for your question. So let's see if we can break this down. You want to build up your credit from non-existent to good, and you want to do that over a period of a couple years so that at that point you'll be able to take out a mortgage on your first home. Well, this is really good reasoning on your part. You're preparing ahead of time. And so this, the answer to your question is going to be actually very simple. The reason people try and make this so complicated is because generally they're trying to repair bad credit 
and that's a harder thing to do. But in your case, since you're just establishing credit, it's actually very easy. I'm going to give you the down and dirty version. This is what I've seen work for other young people. This is what I've seen work for my own children as they've grown up and become adults and have established their own credit. And so I'm sure there are much more complicated, sophisticated ways, but I like to do things simple. In you and your wife's case, you actually do have a credit rating, and if you think you don't, because you mentioned that your wife has student loan debt. Now, fortunately, it's not that high. That's a good thing, but the mere fact that she has student loan debt does give her some type of a credit rating. You didn't tell me the history on her payments there, so I'm not sure if that would be good or bad, but in any case, she does have a track record. The three main credit rating services are required to provide a free report to you each year if you request it. And I'm assuming you haven't done that. I would encourage both you and your wife to go over to annualcreditreport.com. That's annualcreditreport.com. Put in your request to receive your free credit rating. That way you'll be able to establish a baseline. You'll know what credit you have now. And then as you're building your credit and saving up for your home, you can check that report every year and see what progress you're making. Now, as far as establishing credit, the reason I say it's really not that hard to do, you have to remember that our society is a debt-based economy. All the institutions are set up to encourage you to go into debt. And so they make it relatively easy for a young person to establish credit. And that is, you know, consequently why so many people get into trouble because they're not mature enough to handle it. Now, from what you've already told me in your question, it sounds like you and your wife are very mature. You've avoided debt, and so it is time for you to establish a credit rating. Here's what I would do. I would go out and have each of you get your own separate credit cards. This would be one that is in your wife's name under her Social Security number, one in your name under your Social Security number. That would make each of you responsible for those individual credit cards and then you should also add each other onto your cards. So you would take out a card in your name, put your wife on it. She would take out a card in her name, put you on it. Then you'll both be carrying two separate credit cards. The reason this is important is that since you're both working, you should both be establishing credit. When you go to apply for the mortgage, you can do it jointly. Now, there's a difference between a secured credit card and an unsecured credit card. It's best for you to apply for a unsecured credit card that has no annual fee. Go with one of the big name brands like Visa or MasterCard. If for whatever reason you're turned down for a unsecured credit card, which may be the case but because you don't have credit, but on the other hand, since you're gainfully employed and you're in your late 20s, I have to believe that you're in a database somewhere and someone is ready and willing to loan you money. So I think you'll most likely be able to find an unsecured credit card with no annual fee. But if you can't, then go down to your local credit union or your bank that you have a checking account with and apply there for a secured credit card for you and your wife. The way a secured credit card works means that it does act exactly like a credit card. You have to pay it off every month. It's not a debit card. So rather than having the credit card issuers provide you with a monthly borrowing limit on your credit card, it's being secured by the amount of money that you put up as collateral. So first priority is to receive an unsecured credit card with no annual fee. If you can't do that, go to the bank, tie it to your, your checking account, start off with a secured credit card. Once you establish credit, maybe after six months, then go out and get the unsecured card. What you don't want to use is a debit card. A debit card is just like having the checking account, and while it does establish a financial record, it doesn't necessarily establish a credit rating. 
That's why it's important that you go with a mainstream credit card, and I would prefer that you use something like a Visa or a MasterCard. The next thing that I would do if I were trying to build my credit is I would put everything that I buy on that credit card that doesn't cost me an additional fee. And what I mean by that is that if I can go down and go to Walmart and swipe my card and buy something, if they're not giving me any type of a discount for cash, then I would put it on my credit card. When I pay my electric or my utility bill, if they'll allow me to put it on my credit card, I would put it on my credit card unless they charge me like a $3 transaction fee for using a credit card. In that case, I would write them a check. So anything that doesn't incur an additional fee, or doesn't provide me a cash discount, I would put on the credit card and then keep doing what you've always done, which is only buy what you have cash for and then at the end of the month pay off that credit card. The reason I would do that is because it will help build your credit faster and it will establish you as someone that responsibly pays your bills on time. Now, the overall rating on the card is based on its longevity, so the longer you have the card open, the better it is for your credit rating, but it also helps your credit rating to have the volume of cash payments moving through that card. Now, this isn't something I'd recommend to anybody, but since you and your wife have established that you're disciplined, responsible adults, I think it will work for you. Again, just approach this the way you always have. Don't buy anything that you don't have cash to pay for, but just put it on the credit card and then pay it off at the end of the month. There's going to be a card in your name and a card in your wife's name. Rotate those cards so some purchases go on hers, some purchases go on yours. Remember, you'll both have two cards each, one that's primarily in your name, one that's primarily in her name. You'll be able to charge payments to her card. She'll be able to charge payments to your card. That's the way you'll want to balance it. It doesn't have to be split exactly 50-50, but just make sure that you're using both cards to a certain extent to build credit up for each other. As far as credit limits that may be set by the issuer of your credit card, since you're just starting out, your unsecured credit card may come with a lower limit from what you need to charge your monthly expenses. If that's the case, simply start out with what they give you. Always stay below the maximum amount you can charge each month. Pay it off at the end of the month and then call your credit card company and continually ask them to raise your monthly credit card limit. Since you're a responsible person and you're paying your bill off at the end of every month, it's to your advantage to have the highest credit limit that the credit card company will issue to you. And since they're in the business of loaning money, it's to their advantage to extend you a high credit limit. The more use you make of responsible credit, the higher your credit score will go. Some people will tell you that, therefore, you should have multiple credit cards car payments, things like that. I don't think that fits into your lifestyle. I wouldn't recommend that. I think if you you and your wife both take out your own credit cards individually, that will be more than enough. You're talking about doing this over a period of a couple years. That should be fine in establishing your credit. What I would also recommend is that you keep very detailed records of other monthly and consistent payments that you make. Things like your utility bills that you write checks for, maybe your rent, And then also keep copies of things like your tax records and your payment stubs. Those type records will be helpful should there be any question about your electronic history, and they could act as a supplement just to help your existing credit rating. The other thing I would encourage you to do is that when you get maybe six months away from purchasing your home, go down, talk to your local bank, talk to your local credit union, go in, visit with the loan officer, have them assess your credit, 
Tell them about what type of properties you're buying. Perhaps the bank may already have a distressed property like that in their books. That could help you establish a loan with them. And then I would also talk to some very active real estate professionals in your area. Don't go to someone that just does it part-time. Find someone that's actively engaged in dealing with the type of real estate that you're looking to purchase. Talk to them. Generally, they'll know one or two people that's a mortgage broker. Let them run a credit check on you to see what you may pre-qualify for. I encourage you to do that about six months before you're ready to actually go out and purchase a home because that way you won't be caught by surprise. Sam, there's a lot of ways to build credit. You can take out store cards. You can put things away on layaway at Walmart. I wouldn't lose sleep over that. Take out the two credit cards like I talked about. Make sure you only purchase things that you have cash to pay for. Pay off that bill at the end of every month and then save everything you can over these next 24 months so that you have a down payment on your starter home. You didn't tell me the exact income, but you did tell me approximately what you and your wife make per hour. So assuming you're working full time, I think you can afford the property that you mentioned in in your question. My recommendation is that you don't take out a mortgage that's more than two and a half to three times what your annual income is. You seem to fit within that range. I like your idea of buying a a fixer-up type homestead. You're going to put sweat equity into that. It's going to become not just a home, but a productive piece of real estate. I think you're moving in the right direction. If you'd like more information about my market commentary or about general wealth building principles, please check out my Wealth Setting podcast. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. Okay, great stuff from John Pugliano on building credit. Let's uh, move to a nutritional question. This one for Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method. Um, here it is. Uh, my question is for Gary Collins. is about when to trim fat off meats for best nutrition and taste. Uh, background, this past summer we raised a hog and butchered it according to methods presented by the Farmstead Meatsmith. Uh, with fat and skin still on, many cuts, especially the roasts. Now we're cooking some of these roasts. My wife and I are having a disagreement about whether or when to trim fat and skin. She prefers to trim before cooking, which I think makes the meat dry. I prefer to cook the roast with the fat, skin intact, and trim. Afterward, which I think makes the meat juicier and more flavorful. What say you, Gary? And this is from Robert. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method. And we have a question today about whether to leave the fat on your animal meat before you cook it or after if you should trim it uh, for nutritional value or taste and or leave the skin on as well which is obviously high in fat my simple answer to this is for nutritional value and taste leave it on um, fat is healthy for us we're supposed to consume it and uh, remember that it is the most nutrient dense macronutrient in the sense that it has nine calories per gram when compared to four calories per gram with carbohydrates and protein. So now I think him and his wife are arguing, uh, you know, whether they should cut it after or before, depending on flavor, nutrition. And there are cases where you would trim it off. And, but they, I'm guessing that they did use proper uh, techniques as far as raising the animal. It was free range. It wasn't exposed to any herbicides, pesticides, antibiotics, or anything like that. In that case, obviously, my preference is leave the fat on. I eat all of my uh, properly raised animals full fat. I don't trim anything off. Now, with that, also remember that fat and protein go together for a reason, and they're so you will be satiated or sated. You will feel full. That also helps you in not to overeat. So 
Remember that as well. That is why you must have some sort of animal flesh within your diet. If you eat nothing but carbohydrates, you will be big, unhealthy. And this is not a discussion for veganism or vegetarianism or anything like that. Um, but also there is a couple cases where you would actually trim off the fat or remove the skin. And here is uh, when we're talking about CAFO raised animals, confined animal feeding operations, or industrial farms is what we're thinking of. And this is because these animals will store, just like humans, will store toxins in their fat. So when it comes to animals, I mean, they're usually, there'll be things like dioxins, PCBs, insecticides, herbicides, trace amounts of antibiotics, um, growth hormones, you know, anything like that. So and the danger in that is, you know, their their dioxins, especially, they're they're a byproduct of the industrial processes of manufacturing certain items. So they've been found to cause cancer, mutations, birth defects, and PCBs have been pretty well, you know, exposed in the news of causing. They're an endocrine disruptor, and basically, it'll, it'll mess up your thyroid function. So people who have a lot of PCBs can have massive weight gain problems, losing weight, because um, they have their thyroid is completely screwed up because of this chemical. So in that case, what you would do is if you have a cut of that type of meat, you would be better off to remove as much of the fat and skin as you can before you cook it. Now, afterwards, you can do it as well. Like when I travel on the road and I know um, consuming you know, meat at a restaurant that's not grass-fed or free-range, I will actually cut a lot of the fat off, even though some of it, obviously, if you cook it, it's going to absorb into the, the animal uh, flesh as far as the muscle tissue. So it's still going to be in there, but it'll be a lot less. Um, and that's you know a way around it. I mean... It, you know, if you don't do it all the time, you'll be fine. Your body will be able to take care of these toxins naturally. But, I mean, as a perfect example, though, 95% of all the dioxins found in humans come from animal fat, they have found. So, yeah, when it comes to that, and the way it sounded that these folks had raised, I, I'm guessing they raised this animal correctly and it was free range, wasn't exposed to any of this stuff. There is another example where you may want to remove the skin or animal fat prior or after cooking, and that is on oh, here go my dogs going nuts. Um, and that would be the case if you're like a competitive bodybuilder. I mean, this is what bodybuilders will do. I have many friends who are in the industry, and what they will do is they'll cut fat out right away, you know, when they start leaning down. And that's, you know, a rare case. I don't think any of us are competitive bodybuilders for the most part. So I think we're safe there. But that would be why, because they're going into a calorie restriction and trying to lean down. Well, I hope that answers uh, your question. And it was a good one. But for me, I love tasty fat cooked on my healthy, raised, free-range, grass-fed meat. So... Take care, guys, and if you have any questions, put it in the comments, or you can email me at contact at primalpowermethod.com. So here's my short addition to this. If you're eating factory meats, etc., obviously skin and especially fats are places where toxins concentrate. Gary covered that. Yeah, you might want to consider severely reducing the amount of that you eat when you have to eat factory meat. Done. But this is what I have to say. This is the, 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 the point uh, direct Jack response to this whole thing. If you go through the trouble to pasture raise your own pork 
and then through the trouble to scald and remove the, 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 the hair, and then through the trouble to process this meat into something that is beautiful and unattainable, unattainable in, 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 in any stores in America today. It is almost impossible to find beautiful pastured skin on pork, and you trim that off before you cook it. You are flat out crazy out of your freaking mind, and you are brainwashed. You are brainwashed. That is one of the most fundamentally beautiful foods God ever created, and you should be punished for the sin of removing the skin and fat from such a wonderful thing before you cook it, and you're still a little crazy if you do it after you cook it. Eat it. That's what it's there for. That's why you process it that way in the first place. This is why you raise your own food so that you can eat the most healthy parts of the animal that we've ruined with modern productive systems. But that's just my thought. I guess I'm kind of crazy that way that I actually value the most nutritious, valuable part of the animal, the fat. Human beings are designed to run on fat. Proteins and carbohydrates have to be converted to simpler carbohydrates or to carbohydrate for the body to actually burn and use them. Where when we consume fast, the body is actually able to take that material immediately and burn it and use it for energy without any conversion process. It is the first energy source, not the last. But, you know, that's just science without any political bullshit thrown into it. Anyway, going on to the next one, I have a question. Same one as always for Paul Wheaton. And that is Paul. Tell us what's been going on at Wheaton Labs. It's been a while since we've had you check in because of all the disruption with events here. Uh, what are you up to, man? Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from Wheaton Laboratories with another update with Jocelyn Campbell mm-hmm. from Wheaton Laboratories. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Trying to finish up from where we left off last time. Um, uh, we have uh, what we call Volcano Road is now done. Uh, so it's a road here at Base Camp. That goes from, so Jack, you were here. It goes from the part where, uh, all of the buildings are up to the back of the property, which is like a mountain. Right. The little peak here is 500 feet and we call it the hollowed out volcano with good submarine access. Because when you seek world domination, you need one of those. Yes. Um, we, uh, I want to express that, uh, um, as with everybody who lives, uh, out, uh, in the country, uh, and you're trying to do permaculture, occasionally you're going to go rent equipment. And our lesson this year is only rent equipment from the, the good, high quality, reputable dealer. We thought we were going to save a few hundred bucks by going with kind of a mom and pop shop. And, uh, it turns out that, of course, uh, and I, now I, now that we've had it happen to us, I recall people telling us, oh, don't rent from those kinds of places because they're a scam. They're going to find 87 different things to try and screw you. So that's going to probably still take us several more weeks to unravel. It was a month ago and we still haven't finished unraveling all of their psycho crazy like, oh, we're renting this for $1,100. And now it's like, oh no, they're, they took $2,500 off of the credit card. Which, anyway, oh, there's, yeah, this isn't permaculture. There. This is just angry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but we had our own excavator did quite a bit of the work as well as a rental excavator. And it's a very rocky piece of land here. Right. And then we hit some rock that was much harder than the other rock. So this is the Rocky Mountains. We're, 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 oh. we're spending a lot of time, uh, being involved and learning what that 
name really means. <laughs> We're going to have, you know, all these different kinds of rock yeah. <laughs> to make the Rocky Mountains. But we, we plowed through um, uh, a whole lot of rock that was, you know, a little bit easier to kind of bust up as we went along. And then we hit some rock that was not. And so we, but we did um, find a way through it. Um, I think that there were a lot of lessons to be learned about um how we had, you know, some some people were kind of like, um, uh, oh, well, I guess we're done then. We can't do that. And other people were, you know, going to find a way through it and get the project done uh-huh. as opposed to leaving yet another project undone. <clears throat> so it is really done. Done, 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 done. Uh, I want to put out a shout out of thanks to Tim Barker from Australia. He's the uh, former land manager for Jeff Lawton, who was here for our innovators event. And uh, he got our old rusty uh, dump truck, which we call the Millennium Falcon. Yes. <laughs> it doesn't look like much, but it'll do the Kessel Run some days. It, right, right, <laughs> right. So um, <laughs> when he got it running, um, and, and uh, uh, which it required like four different little attempts, like you fix one thing and then another thing is broken, you fix another thing and... But he, he kept it running and we got the job done. Uh, so we got the road built up to the, near the top of the volcano. Then we needed to get the Millennium Falcon up there. And uh, we had one driver, uh, was, was not confident in the new road <laughs> and, and thought that, uh, the, the Millennium Falcon might come rolling the, the alternative style of rolling, not <laughs> yes. the way it's designed to roll, right. but the other kind of roll. Right. <laughs> Off the, the kind, side. The kind where the driver ends up upside down a few times. Like, yes. Wee! Yeah. yeah, like that. So, um, and another driver was worried that they'd be going up this little road and then, uh, the, the truck might stop working and it would go, cause the thing is, is, is that this is an old Kenworth. And you get inside, it looks like an airplane cockpit. And I've driven a lot of different equipment, especially old equipment. Yet this whole 18-wheeler space of a long time ago is a space I've never driven. So I don't feel confident I could drive it. Whereas everything else here, I don't have a problem with. But anyway, finally, Josh uh, you know, weighed all the concerns and felt like they were all silly. Uh, for example... If the Kenworth is going up the road and then it stops running, um, then the thing is, is that all the brakes are activated by having air pressure. So then if you lose your air pressure for any reason, the brakes all activate and the thing doesn't roll. Huh. Um, but and that's anyway. good to know. And Josh, Josh has had education in that space. So he, yeah, he, he didn't have any that. problem at all. Yeah. Got it right up there. Yay, Josh. Right. And Evan's one who did all the excavating. Evan powered through. Yeah. And, and he's one of our aunts here. Um, That's awesome. So. And the reason we wanted this road is the road that was here was lousy. We uh, It had way too steep uh, portions, portions that were yeah. way too steep. We actually had... I think I took Jack up there once. Yeah. In, in like the Polaris. Yeah. And, yeah. And it's like stuff barely makes it up there. And we needed it. I mean, basically, we needed that space to be usable. Right. It exactly. Was, That's what the road's for, to make this property more usable and be able to get equipment up there, building supplies, all materials. of Materials. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus, the, the road's been carefully planned out to be uh, an alleyway for a paddock shift system. That, too. Yeah. yeah. So uh, one of so speaking of Evan the ant, uh, one of the ants, Jim, uh, finished his structure well enough to have a housewarming party. That was sweet. <laughs> I mean, sweet and sweet. Yeah. 
So um, uh, one structure's done. Evans is almost done. Uh, Jesse has an amazing video that he put together. It's kind of like a time lapse thing, and it's like uh, people kept calling it like building a house with Lincoln logs. <laughs> and so uh, uh, there's that. That's and, and Jesse's been putting out these kind of cool Prennicky style videos yeah. that have been that have been great, showing his uh, stuff under construction. Yeah. Uh, one of the giant hugel cultures at base camp has been completed, uh, and and the thing is, is when we build- an additional one. There's there's many here already, but right. a, a newer one, yes. Yeah, and and I just finished uh, posting a bunch of pictures of uh, where we had pictures of the lab. I don't know if you've seen them, Jocelyn. I have not. Uh, but but showing the plans for uh, paddocks and and hugel cultures, hopefully to be built. Uh, uh, this winter and spring, uh, so that way we can start raising chickens. I've been putting off raising chickens here because um, I do not want yet another system where what we do is we feed uh, moldy chicken food, even if it's organic. I mean, it's it's not even the reason why it is available as chicken food is that it's not even of a high enough quality to be sold as human food. There's something that right. wrong with it. Right. So I want to be able to, to feed the chickens at least 90% food that's coming right off of the land that we're growing for them. And so that means we need to get at least four paddocks set up, which is difficult on land that's solid rock. To, <laughs> to get the hugel cultures here, which, yeah. you know, the one I'm just now talking about, is a challenge because there's not soil here. And so we have to import it from the lab. So the lab has amazing deep soil, but here at base camp, it's one solid rock. So, um, hence the Millennium Falcon needs to be running in order to, to move needs soil. to be running, and we need to have somebody who knows how to drive that kind of thing. Right, right. So, um, or else it doesn't happen. So, uh, but we're but the stuff that has been completed just recently has been uh, getting seeded heavily from uh, Kai and Fred. Um, all right, Allerton Abbey. Uh, so this is what we used to call Wafati zero point seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is um, done ish. And and so it now has a seal, and so um, but we finished it so late in the year this year, it got it sealed up so because it didn't have a wall and a door for a long time, that it's a lot too of cold. This year. So yeah. the the thermal mass is too cold. We can't really test it this year. So next year will have to be the big test. Um, uh, so the uphill and downhill walls were replaced with straw bale walls. Uh, we do have some more cob work to be doing on that. Um, and that will go through the winter and possibly into the spring. Uh, it does have new windows and doors on the uphill and downhill side. Um, the facade is complete, so the facade on the back was not yet complete. Uh, we had a, there was a rocket mass heater that was put in there that didn't work. Uh, basically, the guy that put it in had all kinds of ideas of fun things to try. Um, and uh, uh, you know, you're giving me hand signals. <laughs> I don't know what your hand no, signals mean. No, we're about at the end because I. I know I'm going as fast as I can. Light. So um, the the thing is, is that there was a rocket mass heater in there, and the guy that built it, he did, uh, he wanted to put in every fun idea that's ever been discussed in rocket mm-hmm. mass heaters into it, and it's kind of like, and he has never built just a standard one before, and and so it didn't work, and uh, so uh, Peter uh, Vandenberg was here for the rocket mass heater innovators event. He's one of our big innovators. And um, so we, he and I talked about it, and he came up with a design to make it a rocket heater. After all, a wafati is a mass. Right. And I thought that was a very interesting approach, so he got that working. Uh, the annualized thermal inertia will be tested next year. So the heat from the summer will be used to heat the structure through the winter 
the next year. So we got to go through summer, this upcoming summer first, to yeah. charge the mass. Yeah. And we have a $2,500 bounty on finishing up all of the cob work <clears throat> uh, on that for this year. Um, uh, speaking of which, all of our winter bounties are getting posted, um, and we've got people coming out to work on these things. But, um, yeah. hey, we could use a few more people. Although, I got to express that um, it's very few people that would like to come out here. I mean, just the fact that we say no pot, I think that eliminates about 96% of permaculture enthusiasts right there. Um, and uh, uh, no tobacco, that eliminates a lot also. So um, very, I think very few people like to come out here. Um, but, hey, we're out of time. <laughs> More to talk about next time, Jack. Thanks. All right, good stuff and fun stuff from Paul, as always. I don't know that no pot rules out 90% of the permaculture movement. I think maybe it rules out 90% of the part of the permaculture movement that follows Paul Wheaton. I'm just saying, Paul, maybe that's part of the issue there, but whatever, dude. Uh, the no tobacco thing, I don't really get. I get the no pot thing because it's like, hey, you know, uh, we could get in trouble for that, and then there could be these department of making you sad people here, and we could lose this entire operation. But no tobacco, I here's my philosophy with tobacco on my property. Keep it the hell out of my buildings and my house, or I'll punch you in the head. And then, like, way over there is a place that you can do that, except unless you're smoking a nice pipe or cigar around the campfire. But everybody runs their own individual voluntary dictatorship their way, and I think that's how we need to see our properties. Uh, I don't think people get that. Like, everybody today seems like, hey, you know, you shouldn't do that. Well, maybe you shouldn't do that on somebody else's property, but my property, my rules. And I think that that's how we have to be as landowners and property owners. This is a voluntary dictatorship. I didn't make you come here. Uh, I didn't put you in chains and drag you here. So if you come here, you follow my rules. And I always do that, whether I agree with somebody's rules or not. And Paul and, and I can go back several years and, and think about it in a time when that was exactly the case. Anybody that listens to the show knows I'm a complete believer in the right to self-defense, protection, keeping bare arms. And when I went to the Seb Holzer thing, he was working with a, a girl named Katerina. And Katerina said, I cannot have guns on my property. Did you tell this Jackie brings no guns? And I said, as a libertarian, since I want to go on her property and she didn't you know, demand that I come there, I won't be armed on her property. The funny thing was, like, half the people there were armed and she didn't think they were because they were permaculturists. Again, I think that we have a problem in society today with the word permaculture and we don't really understand what it's all about or what it means, and we're typecasting people uh, into different roles as permaculturists. And here's how I feel about permaculture. If it meets the prime directive, which is taking responsibility for myself and that of my children, if it doesn't harm the earth, it doesn't harm people, and it returns surplus to systems of production to further the first two, care of earth, care of people, then it's permaculture, period. I don't care if it's agriculture or running a business or running a community. So I think permaculture is simply, in more ways than not, now a holistic system adjective. right? It describes a thing, and then we all choose how we do that. So permaculture is not a bunch of pot smokers or a bunch of militants. It's made up of militants and pot smokers and normal, average, everyday people. People that just want to do good things and take care of the earth, take care of people, be responsible for themselves and their children. And understand that if we continuously extract from a system, we cannot make it regenerative or even sustainable. That's 
my take on permaculture and my follow-up to Paul Wheaton stuff. Anyway, um, moving on, I wanted to take one because I did have quite a bit of piking out of the expert council this week. Uh, and that's all I got without double-playing some of the council members. They did answer both their questions for the month. I don't want to play two from the same person. So I'm going to take one uh, as well uh, this week and answer it for you to fill in for the pikers. And you pikers know who you are. And I just mess with you guys because I piked pretty hard on getting questions to people for quite a while because of all the stuff that was going on. Anyway, um, this one is from Cause in San Diego. Here's what he says. So when you recommend we move our money to a cash fund, do you mean only the current balance? or the investment elections as well. I'm pretty sure you'll be able to give me a good explanation here, but if you want to give this to John Pugliano, that's fine too. He's great. In my 401k plan, there's an option to move the balance and another option to change the investment election. If I do move my balance to the money marketable stable value fund, what should I do with my investment election? It seems to me that if the market goes down, my balance will be safer in a cash fund, but I'll be better off keeping my investment elections in stocks to buy more shares while it's low. I'm familiar with your views on 401ks. I'm actually one of the lucky ones who has a 100% match up to 8% of my income, so it's a pretty good deal as long as I'm smart about it. So if you can help me understand this a little better, I would appreciate it so much. Thank you, Jack. You've been educating and inspiring me for years. Your impassioned rants about the evils of debt literally lit a fire under my butt and helped me dig out of it. You rock, cause in San Diego. Okay, so here's what I want to... Let's, let's first explain that to people that may not know exactly what you asked. Most 401ks do work the way causes do, Okay. You say, I want all of my money that's currently in Fund X to go to this different fund, which might be a cash value fund, a stable bond fund, whatever. And you also have to do another thing to change what you're buying. So every week, every two weeks, whenever you get paid, a certain amount of your money comes out, employer matches there if it is, and then it buys shares of XYZ mutual fund, XYZ value fund, etc. Okay? Pretty simple. And usually the direction that you give to your fund management is multiple. In other words, I can move all my money to a cash fund, but yet I'm still buying the same thing. And some people have made mistakes with this. They move the value over, but they continue to buy in, and that's not what they intended to do. I'm not saying you should or shouldn't yet. I'm just saying that you do need to make sure, because some 401ks work exactly the opposite. Whenever you move that, you also change what you're buying. And you don't have the flexibility to do one and not the other, or the other and not the other. Okay, So just make sure you know what you're dealing with there. So how do I feel about this? Okay, so when I say get the hell out of the stock market, there's, there's no upside potential right now that's worth the risk. Then I would say to do both. Now what Kalaz is saying is doesn't it make sense to be buying while the stock's dropping or buying while it's cheap? Well, that's that's see, that's... That's not what I'm saying to do, okay? If you wait till the market drops and then move to cash, you've just, I mean, you, you've missed the opportunity to get out of the way of the train. You've now been run over by the train, and you may miss the opportunity now to, to benefit from the recovery of the patient, so to speak. So when I'm saying get out, I'm generally saying it before the drop. Now, I'm not a trader. I would say John Pugliano is a trader, a trader, not a traitor, right? A trader. John moves money more frequently than I personally do because he spends his night and day in the market, right? I look at the market more of a long-term trend. And that's what all the financial liars say. We play the long term. We also have to play the middle term. 
Because if you're getting your client's money cut in half once every 10 years, you're not good at your job. And any of you guys out there that let your client there, I'm a financial advisor for Edward Jones and I blah, blah, blah. And if, you're, if your clients have gotten their ass kicked in these multiple telegraphed recessions, you suck at your job, you should quit your job, and you should go do something more productive like wash lettuce at Denny's. I'm sorry, you're not a financial advisor. You're a relationship salesperson. And that's why I have very little respect for the consumer-level financial liar industry because that's exactly what they do. Now, what I say is I can't see every major correction in the, or every correction in the market, but I can see the major ones coming from a mile away, and we have one on the way right now. Will it happen before or after Christmas? I don't know. My money is on it happening after Christmas. I'm saying get out of the way of this shit now because there's no way that you make more than two to three points on your money between now and the end of the year, and you're lucky if you do that. You're lucky if you do that. There is no upside potential in general index funds in the market right now. It doesn't exist. Get out of the way. So let's say you've done that. You say, well, I'm going to keep buying. Now, one, you have mitigated your risk, right? Because as it, you can now, what, they, what, what the financial liars call dollar cost average, as the market's dipping, you're buying a little bit every week. And you know you'll hit the bottom because you have this automatic investment going. Okay, well, here's the secret. You're not going to hit the bottom because the bottoms are always these quick dips that last a couple hours and nobody's 401k transactions ever magically, like a rainbow farting unicorn, hit that magical dip down to the, the bottom of planet Earth. They're generally held to a certain point, either the middle or the end of the month, and they generally happen at a time when it's not the most beneficial because it's almost like those high-frequency trading guys in New Jersey right across the river that are paying more for a server with a shorter fiber optic cable know what they're doing and that they're there to capitalize on those things and make sure you can't in the name of putting liquidity into the most liquid market on planet earth right and we let them get away with it so that's the reality we're dealing with there so here's what i'm saying when you've realized that your money's at risk and you've realized i should now remove the risk as best i can and in your 401k you're either going to have something like a money market stable value fund or you're going to have like a government bond fund I prefer the stable value fund, but if all you have is a U.S. government savings bond fund and you're inside a 401k where you can move back over whenever you want to, that's the best you can do. Then that's what you do. You get out of the way. You then take your allocations, put it in the same place. Let it fall. Let it fall. And then move both back when you feel that you found something approaching a floor. Maybe you don't hit the floor perfectly. But you save yourself all that loss and then all that power in those months of contributions while you were ahead of the game, out of the way, and waiting for it to come back, are then, they take advantage of the big dip. So if we look at 2008, 2009, if you bailed when I said, which was August, by the way, and I actually came on the air in, 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 in late June saying already get out, right? But in August I was going, get out, get out, get out, get the hell out now, like begging people, please, this is coming, please get out, okay? If you bailed then, the odds that you would have actually figured out exactly the bottom point in February of 2009 to get back in, and even have the ability to time it that well inside of 401k are pretty low. But the fact that you could watch just February just slide off the deep end and watch this monumentous recovery begin in, in, in 2009. Now, the economy didn't recover, but the stock market started raging back. 
you had all kinds of time to capitalize on that growth. You could have been three weeks past the bottom and still gotten major capitalization on the growth without any of the pain in the middle. The, this, is the, this is my style. And this is the style you have to have in a 401k. John can like say, okay, well, we're going to get the hell out of all these you know, basic equities right now and just... And then pick and choose, like, okay, this individual stock has amazing potential. Or this particular ETF has really good potential in the next 60 days. And move money in there and make 10 points on it in 60 days. Move the money back out of it. And you can do that when you're managing your own finances, whether they're, they're being done just as in general, as like you know, using a, a discount broker, or if they're in an IRA with a lot of flexibility, which most have. You can't do that in a 401k. You have to take this major timing philosophy inside your 401k because it's the only option you have. So I think I'd love to hear John's follow-up to this, honestly, um, because I think a lot of what John does is very creative and very advantageous and makes a lot of sense. But I think you have to take the informed investor long-term approach and, and, and moving out of the way of and capitalizing on Obviously, telegraph major movements when you're inside a controlled investment vehicle like a 401k. That's my thoughts. All right, so let's uh, let's finish up with a, a song that I'm going to throw out for a variety of reasons today. One, I like to teach people about things that they don't know. Uh, and this song was covered by Billy Dean in 1993. And most people, I think, out there in country music, especially that are familiar with modern country music, are a little younger than me, would think this is Billy Dean's song. It's called We Just Disagree. It's not Millie D, Billy, Billy D, Billy Dean's song. This was uh, done by a guy named David Mason in 1977. And it was one of the top 40 songs of 1977. And I'm going to pay, play you David Mason's version of it from way back then. And you'll hear that the cover that Billy Dean did, with a few changes and a little bit more modern sound, it's pretty much the same exact song. So to me, one of the interesting things that I've always said, especially as I watched country music evolve in the 90s before it kind of got stupid and became pop music, was country picked up where 70s classic rock left off. And, you know, we all know with the, you know, the, the country covers of the Eagles songs and stuff like that, there's a lot of truth to that. But this is another example that I think a lot of people missed. The other thing is, you know, we were just talking about permaculture and you got dope smoking hippies and guys that are more militant types and survivor types and all these different people doing permaculture for good. There's a lot of stuff we're going to disagree on it. So what? So what? Let's focus on what we do agree about because we have a screwed up planet, a screwed up food supply. We're screwing up our children. We're screwing up the economy. We're screwing up the entire planet. Let's fix it. Let's fix the pieces of it that we individually can And let's stop fighting with each other about bullshit that's generally wrapped up into politics that the politicians that we're fighting over wouldn't piss on you if you were burning to put you out and you're cursing your fellow American, your fellow uh, member of this planet to defend or, or, or to attack politicians that don't give a shit about either one of you. And that brings me to the next place that I see this song being valuable next week. Next week will be Thanksgiving. It won't just be people on Facebook cussing each other out. Fathers will curse sons in defense of or attack of people like Barack Obama or John Boehner. Your family's more important than these people. These people do not care about you. They do not care about you. They do not care about you. If you insist on buying into their bullshit, at least don't insist on it to the point where you actually hate 
your fellow American or your brother or your sister or your father or your son or your grandson or your nephew or your uncle. Because trust me, guys, that's exactly what they want. Because nothing is easier to control than a flock of sheep, except multiple small flocks of sheep that all. Oh, that's really easy for the werewolves. They're not even wolves in sheep's clothing. Enjoy this song. Enjoy your weekend. And remember, focus on what you can actually do. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Been away. Haven't seen you in a while. Have you been? Have you changed your style and do you think that we've grown up differently? Don't seem the same. Seems you've lost your fear for me. So let's leave it alone. Cause we can't see eye to eye. There ain't no good guy. There ain't no bad guy. There's only you and me and we just disagree. Thank you.